Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching. John chapter 12 is about expectations. We'll start reading verse 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they give a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. If you remember from last week, last week Lazarus was dead in a grave and he smelled bad because he'd been there for four days. And a week later, he's reclining at the table with Jesus having a meal. So speaking of expectations, like that's pretty crazy. When you start to follow Jesus, one of the things we should actually expect is that he does wild, miraculous, absurd things at times. And it's something we can actually come to expect expectations are really important. They matter. I remember when I was like nine years old, my mom was throwing a, uh, a birthday party for me. And at that time, my favorite sport was hockey. Me and all my friends played hockey. So we had a hockey birthday party. And as part of that, my mom set up this little contest and competition. And I just love competition. I think it's one of God's great gifts. It's really fun. And I happened to win this competition, and so I was thrilled about that because a prize was promised to the winner of the hockey competition. So I went to claim my hard-fought prize for my mother, and she said no. And I was very disappointed as a nine-year-old who just won this contest because I expected the prize, and I won, and I should have got the prize, and she didn't give it to me because apparently it was my birthday, and I'd get other presents later, and we should share with the other kids, which I wasn't really interested in doing. I was probably a jerk in that process, too. I don't really remember it. I do remember probably months later, we were in Phoenix, probably actually, now that I remember this, at a hockey tournament. We went to this restaurant called Typhoon. We'd been there multiple times over the years, and I loved it because it was good food. But at the end, they gave you this massive scoop of ice cream for free, free, on a fancy spoon, and it was delicious. So I was that whole day looking forward to ice cream. There's, there's multiple things I love in life, like Jesus and my wife and my kids. Basketball is way up there. And then ice cream. Those are my top four. You guys are like number five, but ice cream, <laughs> ice cream is up there. It's something I enjoy a lot and frequently. And I was excited for it, but I didn't want to be distracted while I was enjoying this coveted scoop of ice cream I had been expecting after my meal. So first I had to go to the restroom. I came back from the restroom anticipating my ice cream. My ice cream was nowhere to be found. Everyone else had their ice cream. And my whole family knew how much I liked the ice cream. And I look at my mom and I said, what happened to my ice cream? And she said, I ate it. She was like the original Jimmy Kimmel Halloween thing going on. And I was furious with my mother. And then I even cried at nine years old because my ice cream wasn't there and I expected it, to which she then pulled out the ice cream and said it's here. And I was still mad. I maybe haven't forgiven her to this day. Expectations matter in little dumb things like ice cream and prizes and birthday parties. It's funny, on people's birthday parties, I think that's like the day most people are most 
disappointed. You watch it, and it's, it's funny. There's expectations, and they're often not met. I met with somebody today, not about today's topic, about something entirely different, and they said something that was really profound and I think really helpful about expectations, that expectations are resentments in training. Expectations are resentments in training. I thought that was deeply profound. I think really accurate. Now, not all expectations, obviously, if things work out, well, you're not going to be resentful. So maybe misguided expectations are resentments in training, and I think that is just a fact. In marriage, if your spouse has a different vision than you do, that's probably the expectations aren't met. It's going to lead to some resentment. Like, really simply... If you see in a marriage, one person wants kids and the other doesn't, and there's different expectations, that will lead to issues. And parenting, if you have a vision, a set of expectations for your kids, and you work and you provide and you spend lots of money and time creating opportunities for them with a set of expectations, and they don't have the same vision, that will create some conflict in your career if you don't get to rise the way you you want to, or it's more work than you thought, or your compensation isn't what you think it should be. And expectations aren't met. Those are issues. If your health isn't how you think it should be or how you expect it, that will create conflict. Expectations matter. They influence us. And it's the same when it comes to what we expect of Jesus. Expectations when it comes to Jesus can still be resentment and training. We can continue to see this. In in verse 3, we read, Then Mary took a a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Mary did something outrageous in this dinner, in this moment. So much so that Jesus actually felt necessary, or that it was necessary, to defend her because of the outrageous things she had done. She had actually done three outrageous things specifically. Number one, It was outrageous that she was washing his feet. Foot washing was the job of servants. And so she kind of degraded herself and and downgraded her social status and identity to take on the form of a servant to serve Jesus. That's not normal. Very few of us downgrade our status. That's outrageous, and she did it. Second thing is that women did not normally put their hair down in public. That had connotations and meanings. But Mary did because of Jesus, even though there'd be questions as a result. Lastly, this was really expensive. That uh, amount of money was the equivalent. And the the commentary that I was reading this week, or or one of them, which was written many years ago, of $30,000. And that was written, the commentary, when a hamburger was like five bucks. And a hamburger's not five bucks anymore. It's like 17. It's crazy. So you could elevate that $3,000 number up quite a bit. It's expensive. That's outrageous. And the whole room could smell it, literally. 
They're going as $30,000 plus worth of perfume are kind of permeating all around this house after this meal. Why would, these, why would this woman do these outrageous things? And here's something for us to expect from Jesus. When we follow Jesus, we should expect that there will be times he calls us to something seemingly or actually outrageous. It could be ending a relationship. It could be beginning one. It could be hospitality, having someone over, letting someone live with you, kicking somebody out. It could be how you handle your finances. It could be who you spend time with and trust. It could be turning down opportunities or taking one that maybe others don't see as an opportunity. It could be sacrificing your identity. All kinds of things that I've not mentioned. Have you ever experienced that? Has your love for Jesus ever led you to do something seemingly or actually outrageous? And then, depending on your answer, I'd pose this to you. If Jesus has never led you to do something seemingly outrageous, it might mean you are busy casting a vision for Jesus instead of following the vision Jesus has cast for you. Because this is something we can expect from him. Let's keep reading in in verse 9. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. Therefore, the chief priests decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. There's this sort of comical irony in this. The threat they make to Lazarus, who was just dead and brought back to life from death by Jesus, is that they would kill him again. It's intriguing. It's kind of how it works when people oppose Jesus. Like, it's just not going to work. In the long run, it never will make sense. I'm guessing it's also not what Lazarus expected. Remember from last week, Mary and Martha wept. They mourned. They literally wailed in this funeral service that would have lasted days in their culture as their brother was dead. And then he's alive. He's brought back to life. He's breathing. They're having a meal all for Jesus to lead Lazarus once again to death. Now there's going to be assassinations or attempts. One week after he's raised from the grave, Jesus, following Jesus, was going to lead him potentially to death again. That doesn't make sense for most of us. Another thing to expect from Jesus, to be loved by Jesus is to be led to death and then to be eventually led through death. It's two parts, but death is in the center. There's a comical irony in there, like I said, with Lazarus having died. The chief priests taught publicly, like I'm doing now. They held positions of authority. They were looked to for answers. And one of the things they had publicly taught is that there was no resurrection. And so for Jesus to have resurrected Lazarus was going to cost them power and money and prestige and opportunity. Not to mention, he literally was proving them wrong, and so they didn't like that. And they did what you and I often do. Rather than saying three simple words, I was wrong, they plan to kill somebody. Hopefully we don't plan that part, just the first part. Instead of I was wrong, they go, ah, it's better than admit that. Rather than say that, we'll just kill them both. There's a stubbornness. There's a blindness. Jesus had just brought somebody from death to life, and they're so blinded by their arrogance and their vision, rather than accepting his goodness, they reject it. 
and pursue a totally different path. Again, that is blindness. Pride, pressure from culture, needs, perceived or real, family members, values. Often these things can lead us into a, a stupid level of blindness. It's pride in your life, maybe about a theological viewpoint, a way to do church, a way to be parents, a way to be married, a way to be neighbors, a way to work, ever kept you from embracing the goodness of Jesus. It's, it's funny to me that of all people, like to be a follower of Jesus is to literally communicate, I am not enough on my own. To communicate, I am wrong, and I've been wrong frequently. Yet then we follow Jesus and we pretend we have it all together. It's not worth letting pride blind us. Continue in, in verse 12. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They were expecting something. They kept shouting, Hosanna! He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one, the King of Israel. It's kind of hard to bring to life all that would have literally been felt in that moment with those words in that time in this parade. I was talking with my brother-in-law yesterday, reminiscing on, on when we went to the, the NBA Finals a couple years ago. And there was nothing like it. It was incredible. The energy in that arena was absurd. Thousands of people just screaming at the top of their lungs for hours, the building just shaking. You can imagine that, but multiplied so much as this nation had been expectantly waiting for God to send a savior. And now they're thinking, they're expecting that Jesus is that Savior, and he's going to save them from Rome, and he's going to come in on this massive, most important of religious holidays to do so. Their father's dream, and his father's dream, and his father's dream, and his father's dream, all of this built up expectation was going to come together in this moment as they cry out with a lot of meaning, Hosanna! And the buildings shake, and it's probably loud enough you could feel it in your bones. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one, the king of Israel, they declare. That is a lot of expectation. Let me read. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear no more, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on donkey's colts. This next verse is important. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and what they had done, and that he had done these things, they had done these things to him. Another way to interpret that is his disciples had different expectations than what Jesus did. The crowd screaming out for him to conquer as king and save them in this moment, they had a different set of expectations than what Jesus was going to do at that moment. And in that time, we read, meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. And the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I don't think we can begin to fathom how much of a massive disappointment Jesus was to everybody in this time. Because their expectations weren't met. 
And if we don't spend time thinking about what to expect from Jesus, and I can guarantee you Jesus is going to be a massive disappointment in your life too at times because you're casting a vision for him rather than following the vision he's cast for you. Expectations matter. They wanted a horse, not a donkey symbolizing peace. They wanted a warrior, not a sacrifice. They wanted a hero in their own image following their vision. They certainly were not okay with what vision Jesus was casting for what would happen next. So much so, after their expectations were broken within a short, short, short amount of time, go from crying out, Hosanna, the king, to crucify him. Expectations. Love by Jesus is to be led by Jesus, not to lead Jesus. So often we get this mixed up. We try to set the agenda instead of following the agenda. Again, what are your expectations? What do you think Jesus will lead us into? Where is Jesus leading? What can we expect? It's a really fun word. Ready? Death. It's what, it's what he says. The vision Jesus has for us is one of self-sacrifice. We read in verse 20. Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Sounds positive and encouraging. Then he says this, I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I remember the, uh, the summer before Chelsea, my, my wife, got married. We were engaged at this time. And my grandfather, my late grandfather, was spending the summer in Prescott. He, he lived in Phoenix, but he was summon, spending the summer up here. So we spent some time uh, together. And... There were multiple things he said that summer that I will never forget. We, we played around a golf together. He uh, is always a character. He could, he could barely hit the ball like 100 yards, but he parred every hole somehow. I was trying to figure the math out on that one. We get done arguing about our golf scores, and we go to the clubhouse and, and have a drink. And he said the first thing that I will never forget him saying. If you're bashful about four-letter words, you might want to plug your ears. This is probably a real mild version, too. Actually, not probably was. We, uh, we're, we're talking about faith. He knew my faith and my family's, and he uh, did not agree in what he said in this moment with his pretty typical condescending and arrogant and slightly angry voice was, I don't buy into all of that Jesus self-sacrifice bullshit. We sat there, and I listened to my grandfather. And you know what? He's not wrong. <laughs> 
if you got half of the equation right. Much of our world looks at the way of Jesus and agrees with my grandfather because it makes no sense. If the the world, if our lives are nothing more than uh, a version, some form of survival of the fittest, then maybe you can make the argument it makes sense to love those around you because they can benefit you. But it can't make sense to love your enemies. The way of Jesus makes terrible sense. Self-sacrifice, loving, the way of Jesus is, is an awful plan in and of itself until we realize the miracle worker that Jesus is. Until we realize that that is just half of the equation, that death and self-sacrifice are not the ending point, but a through point. What my grandfather got right was that self-sacrifice is hard. And in and of itself, not worth it. What he missed was the exponential multiplying power of our miraculous God, of his design, of his love, of his blessing. That loving others sacrificially actually leads to life and abundance and more. He didn't understand that. He was blinded to that like he was blinded to many things. Look again at verse 24 and 25. I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's a little bit hard to understand, but it's important. So let's talk about that. Leon Morris puts it this way. The man who loves his life is destroying it right now. I think that's helpful. Meaning this. Does not mean that you aren't valuable. Jesus died for you. So the literal price tag Jesus put on you was his death. Doesn't get much more valuable than God dying. This also does not mean that Jesus wants you to have a boring, miserable life. He says he came to give you life and life to the full. Abundantly, Jesus rose for you. What this does mean is that if you seek self, if you love protecting and providing for you most, you will destroy your life as you seek to do that thing. We often uh, create a a false dichotomy here. I think this is actually one of Satan's most kind of go-to tactics in his tool bag, specifically for attacking Christians, the church, people already following Jesus. It's the creation of false dichotomies. I think someday there should be a book about all of the different false dichotomies Satan uses, especially as we read the scriptures to lead us astray. In this case, the, uh, the false dichotomies could be this that you can either value yourself or value others. It doesn't work that way. Or another way to put it is, if it is good to seek the good of others, then it is bad to seek the good for yourself. Both of those things can happen simultaneously. It's the order, it's the sequence, it's the prioritizing that matters. Jesus died and rose to give you abundant life, Jesus made colors for artists to create with. And he made music to please our ears. He created bodies and movements to enjoy and speech and words to be creative with and write poetry and make stories that are captivating. Hands for 
builders to, to build and taste buds, not just for us to have nutrition and the calories needed, but to deeply be satisfied by a meal. Our God went above and beyond to give us life, not just spiritually. But we shall not seek first ourselves. Doesn't mean we don't care for ourselves or value ourselves. Jesus did that. It's not a poverty theology. But it's seeking God's vision first. Asking what steps is he leading me in? It's seeking the good of others before my own. Not always just instead of. It's not an either or. But before. Let's keep reading. Verse 28. Or 29. The crowd standing there heard a voice from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. They said it was thunder. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw people to myself. He said this to signify what kind of death he was about to die. And the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the scripture that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness does not overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Jesus said this and went away and hid from them. Jesus was to be lifted up. There's a, a double meaning there, and it is not a false dichotomy. He will give up his life, and he will be lifted up onto a cross to embrace death. Then he would go to the grave in death. Then he would be lifted up with life again and walk. And then he would be lifted up yet again to take his place on the throne as king. The one name that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow to worship. That is the journey. This is the motion, the movement, the arc of the life and the way of Jesus. Into death and then through death and up into resurrection. And it's what we can expect us as followers too, a consistent, repeated movement into deaths of different kinds, death to self, death to sin, death to our misplaced desires, and then up into resurrection of what his goodness calls us into. Author Paul Miller uh, wrote a, a book on this called J-Curve. You can see the, the cover and kind of the motion on the, the next slide. He kind of creates this image. It starts with Jesus dying and going into death in the bottom, then the motion up where Jesus rises for us. It's the same. We die and then we rise on the, the next slide. It's a little bit more specific. We put to death, the scriptures say, the sinful flesh way in our lives, and then we rise and put on the new self. It's being renewed in his image. This is what repentance looks like. It's sufferings, the same pathway in motion for Christians. We enter death. Sometimes we embrace the deaths others are going through, the mourning, the sufferings, the hardships, and we suffer with them. And then we rise with them and we rejoice with those rejoicing. This is faithfulness. This is experiencing the pathway of Jesus. This is what we can expect. 
Continue to read the last section, verse 37. Even though we had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. But this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? This is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah also said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and be converted, and I would heal them. This is one of those kind of terrifying passages that says, at some point, God gives us what we ask for, and if we continue to reject him and not listen to his voice, that will harden and deepen until it gets to the point where we've completely rejected him. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many did believe in him. There's two pathways, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so they would not be banned from the synagogue. For they loved the praise from men more than praise from God. This blindness leads me to the other thing that my grandfather said that day that I will not ever forget. He gave me some terrible uh, advice about marriage, to which I responded that I would not be taking that advice, to which he uttered all kinds of things I probably shouldn't actually say into the, uh, the, the microphone. Part of it included, as he, he kind of yelled at me there, I was a damn good husband to all my wives. And we're not talking one or two or three. And the, the kind of crazy parts, this is hardness of hearts and blindness of the eyes and an inability to hear, is that he didn't think it was funny. He didn't see any irony in it. He completely believed that he was a great husband to all of his wives that he did not stay married to. I've always actually been terrified when I come across somebody that completely lacks self-awareness because they have no clue how unaware they actually are. And so then I ponder the question like, oh my gosh, how would I actually know if I'm that uh, unself-aware? It's kind of terrifying when you process it. As much as it's easy to point at my, my grandfather's folly we're prone to the same pride. We're prone to the same blindness. We're prone to casting a vision for Jesus instead of following the vision he's cast for us. We're prone to, to being stubborn and refusing those words I was wrong and choosing to take the steps he's paved. We're prone to so frantically and in such a, a hurried manner, planning for our own lives, creating a 10-step plan for retirement, for our relationships, for our businesses, for our houses. Sometimes we don't have any gap to listen to what he's actually planned for us. Don't let yourselves be blinded by pride. It's not worth it. Don't let pride cause you to reject the goodness that Jesus is offering, even if it does mean, and it does, that he leads us into death. He always leads us through death. The beautiful thing about Jesus 
is that resurrection is always on the other side when we're trusting in his name. May that be something we never forget and we follow him in. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your goodness, for your power and your might and your love. God, I pray that you free us from ourselves. Give us clarity in our minds and in our thinking and what we feel and hear and see. Protect us, deliver us from the evil of Satan seeking to manipulate and distort our vision and, and cause misconceptions. Free us from our misguided expectations. Help us to trust you. Overwhelm us with your vision and what steps you want us to take. Help us to surrender, to follow you because you are always good. We love you. We look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week. We are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of Jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it. And whether you're new here, seeking more information, looking for a church community, or considering financial partnership, go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details. Okay, let's continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.